0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of It Could Happen. You will recall that the last episode ended with events of the Friday beginning Labor Day weekend. There was very promising news about multiple vaccine trials. The stock market was backed at November 2019 levels, and the Justice Department dispatched 5,000 federal agents to 20 American cities without being requested by state or local governments. Good afternoon. It's twelve thirty p.m. on Tuesday, September 8th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. Today is the day after Labor Day, the day that has been for as long as anyone can remember the traditional end of summer and start of the school year. Only one of those things is happening this year. The opening of the school year has been delayed in every state that will open their schools at all until next Monday, September 14th. Only 15 states have agreed to a hybrid school week, with students attending in-person two or three days per week and having the rest of their lessons delivered online. Thirty-five other states are still formulating plans, with none of them ready to commence the school term before Monday, October 5th. In a very dramatic contrast to the usual Labor Day weekend montage of backyard cookouts and swimming pool gatherings, several of our major cities were epicenters of political rallies and demonstrations. Attorney General Barr indeed did send thousands of U.S. troops to, as he put it, protect federal property and quell outbreaks of un-American activity. Troops were dispatched to Portland, Oregon, whose largely peaceful demonstrations had continued throughout the month of August, and to Chicago, Brooklyn, New York, and perhaps surprisingly, Richmond, Virginia. Richmond was chosen, suggested CBS News anchor Nora O'Donnell, because of its recent demonstrations that resulted in the pulling down of several monuments of Confederate generals. Richmond had been the capital of the Confederacy during the Civil War and has long maintained its Dixie heritage. We go now to our White House correspondent, Sam Wilson, for breaking news from the House of Representatives. Sam? Thank you, Bill. The House of Representatives has just passed legislation in another party-line vote to appropriate emergency funding for the U.S. Postal Service to handle the additional burden that vote-by-mail ballots will place on the system. There has been talk for months that the Postal Service would need additional funding to cover the cost of overtime to handle the significant increase in mail processing and delivery associated with a sizable increase in mail-in ballots. As has been well documented, New Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has been cutting staff, eliminating overtime, and allowing mail deliveries to be delayed in order to save money, all at a time when Voting by Mail presents the safest method for citizens to cast their votes this year. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she would be expediting this legislation to the Senate and asking Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to bring it to the Senate floor for a vote in a timely manner. Thank you, Sam. The tumultuous state of the country was the main topic of the 120-minute town hall held last evening by Democratic nominee Joe Biden and his running mate Kamala Harris. The two spent most of the first hour discussing the effect the pandemic has had on the economy, the political scene, the health industry, and, most importantly, according to VP candidate Harris, our battered and bloodied educational system. The second hour was given over to questions and answers from viewers across the country, in the spirit, said Biden, of a real town hall meeting. Political commentator John Maxon was in the studio for the socially distanced presentation, and he is here with his observations. Thank you, Bill. It was a spirited event, even without an audience. Biden was direct, he was straightforward, and he avoided those gaps which have come to characterize his public oratory over the years. In the Q&A hour, he answered every question with a carefully worded response. His goal seemed to be to present himself as a thoughtful alternative to President Trump. On the other hand, VP candidate Harris was passionate, eloquent, and seemingly fearless as she chastised the Trump administration regarding virtually every decision that it has made during the pandemic. We would not be in this situation, she cried, if we had competent leadership. We would not be in this situation, she repeated time and again, followed by a blistering attack on the Trump administration and its failure to combat the virus and to calm the divisive passions of the nation. We simply cannot allow this administration to continue, she said as she concluded. We must redeem the soul of our nation. All major networks covered the town hall meeting in its entirety with the exception of Fox News. They instead gave a summary after each hour. Their viewers did not see or hear the flaming oratory of Senator Harris. Thank you, John. Throughout the entire two hours, President Trump tweeted and tweeted and tweeted yet again. A remarkable total, even for Mr. Trump, of 114 tweets were posted during the 120-minute rally, almost one tweet per minute. Most of them were quite short on substance, but sharp on attack mode. Not true was tweeted several times. We cannot allow the radical Democrats to take over our country or our schools, was another common refrain, tweeted seven separate times. In many of his tweets, usually in all caps, He often just simply used his favorite two words lately, Sleepy Joe, followed by sometimes three, sometimes four punctuation marks. Fox News, in its hourly summary, included several of the president's tweets after each short clip it showed of the town hall meeting. Good afternoon. It's 1230 p.m. on Wednesday, September 9. This is Bill Beckley reporting. Last night, President Trump held his first rally since the sparsely attended event in Tulsa back in July. Several planned August rallies in Alabama, Texas, Ohio, and Pennsylvania were all canceled with very short notice before each were scheduled to take place. The re-election committee cited different reasons from weather to angry mobs of anarchists and terrorists, a.k.a. protesters, or COVID-19 safety restrictions put in place by state and local governments to keep their citizens safe. In reality, according to sources involved in the planning, all were canceled due to very weak turnout projections. Last night's rally was held at Simmons Army Airfield at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Unlike Tulsa, over 10,000 supporters from surrounding Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina attended. As you can see in these videos of the event, dozens of Confederate flags can be seen flying throughout the crowd, despite the RNC rules banning their use. In keeping with our network policy, we will not be broadcasting audio of either candidate's remarks during this campaign season. While Mr. Trump did run through his standard checklist of talking points during his remarks, he definitely spent some extra time defending Confederate statues, the Confederate flag, and military bases named after Confederate generals. If there's one thing he learned as a reality TV show host, It was how to play to an audience, both in person and via the airways. He also seemed to take some extra time on two other topics. First, he chastised states for not reopening schools fully as he had directed. Even his Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, came under fire for caving to the liberal left when she agreed to allow school districts extra time to prepare for opening. Second, he continued his relentless assault on universal mail-in voting. Polls have been showing for months that Democrats and Republicans are more deeply divided on this issue, even in states where, statistically speaking, mail-in votes favor Republicans. The president continues to beat the rigged election drum more and more as he slips further behind former Vice President Biden in state and national polls. According to Ed O'Keefe, chief political pollster for CBS News, if the election were to be held tomorrow, Biden would win by four percentage points. Good afternoon. It's 12.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 10th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. The Senate, after little debate, failed to pass the bill that would have sent emergency funding to the U.S. Postal Service to handle the anticipated increase in mail-in voting this year. The bill included stipulations that the funds were to be used to cover the costs of overtime and processing to ensure that all ballots were postmarked and delivered to their respective election committees without delay so that the vote count could begin at midnight, November 3rd. Majority Leader McConnell allowed the bill to reach the floor for a vote, knowing that he had the votes to block it. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah was the only Republican to side with the Democrats on the vote. Presidential candidate Joe Biden issued a statement immediately after the bill failed in the Senate. This is nothing more than an effort by Republicans to suppress voting because they see it as an advantage for President Trump. I commit to every citizen in this country that my administration will work diligently to ensure that every eligible voter can cast a secure vote no later than the 2024 election, either from their phone, by mail, or in person as they see fit. This is not a partisan issue. It is an American issue. In related news, reports have been coming in from the state legislatures across the country that many are working with local election committees to implement a number of strategies aimed at making sure that as many citizens as possible can safely cast their votes in early voting, but no later than Election Day. In several states that have not historically relied on mail-in voting, lawmakers are urging local election districts to set up secure ballot drop boxes at post offices and city halls. They are issuing specific guidelines developed in collaboration with the bipartisan organization's Democracy Works and Project Votes to ensure that ballots can be collected every night and stored securely until November 3rd. If effectively implemented, this will take a tremendous burden off the U.S. Postal Service, stated Representative Zoe Lofgren, Democrat from California and Chairwoman of the Committee on House Administration, which has oversight responsibility for matters relating to federal elections. Good afternoon. It's 12.30 p.m. on Friday, September 11th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. On the coronavirus front, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, North Carolina, Ohio, Michigan, and Virginia are all reporting the lowest rates of infection, hospitalizations, and deaths in the U.S. These seven states banded together in early August to secure the means to implement massive rapid testing, isolation, and contact tracing. At the same time, they began formulating plans to be able to more broadly open their economies and schools based on the testing and tracing data. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, chairman of the U.S. Governors Association, spearheaded the effort. In a joint statement issued by the three Republican and four Democratic governors involved in the project, the governors made it clear that that what they had accomplished was a clear example of what the Trump administration could have accomplished if they had been focused on a solution, rather than downplaying the severity of the pandemic. The statement read, in part, This is what it looks like when politics is put aside in the interest of U.S. citizens. Other states are now forming their own similar coalitions in an effort to duplicate the success of these states. That's a wrap for the second installment of It Could Happen. The next episode promises to give everyone something to think about and changes the trajectory of the election when stuff happens. You won't want to miss it.